Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello everyone, I'm Daz and welcome to American Civil War and UK History. This presentation is available as a video on our YouTube channel and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. This year is the 160th anniversary of America's single bloodiest day in history, which is of course the Battle of Antietam. And uh, joining me today is two very good friends. Um, we have Tyler McGraw, the Unfield Historian. Good evening, Tyler. Good evening, everyone, and good evening, Daz. And we have Tim Willim. Evening, Tim. Evening, how are you? Good, thank you. Before we discuss the battle, I'm going to give you a quick overview of the Maryland campaign. At the beginning of September 1862, Robert E. Lee decides to invade Maryland in the hope of rallying support from the people in Maryland and, of course, from the uh, foreign powers abroad. He splits his army of Northern Virginia, Jackson goes to Harper's Ferry, and D.H. Hill is sent to South Mountain to defend Lee's rear. The Union, George McClellan, the Army of the Potomac. After defeat at the Second Battle of Bull Run, John Pope's army is put together with the Army of the Potomac, and Lincoln reluctantly gives overall command to George McClellan. On September the 13th, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell finds a piece of paper wrapped around three cigars known as Special Order 191, which has Lee's plans on. McClellan famously says, For here is a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I'll be willing to go home. On Wednesday, September 17th, 1862, the scene is set for what will become the single bloodiest day in American history. Um, so let's quickly look at the two armies. You have, obviously, um, commander of the Army of the Potomac. You have George McClellan, strength 87,000, around about there. And the Army of the Potomac commander, uh, sorry, the Army of North Virginia commander, Robert E. Lee, strength 45,000. Um, and so there we are. So we get to Antietam. So, OK, let's talk about the morning phase and uh, the cornfield. So, Tim, would you like to start, please, mate? Sure. Um, so early morning, uh, really about dawn or just before uh, the Union Army will begin its advance. They begin it on their right. So opposite Lee's left, um, in the northern part of what's now the Antietam battlefield. And they're on a farm uh, known as the Poffenberger Farm, owned by Jacob Poffenberger. Um, and it's uh, the Union First Corps, about 9,000 men under command of Joseph Hooker, uh, that lead this advance. And their objective is high ground in the vicinity of the, what's known as the Dunker Church, uh, the Dunkers being a German uh, pacifist Baptist sect. Um, you know, they believe in baptism by immersion, hence the name Dunkers. Um, so they have a small whitewashed church um, kind of built into the eastern edge of what's known as Westwoods, opposite a relatively high plateau that becomes kind of the key uh, terrain 
uh, for the battlefield. It's currently the site of the visitor center, and that's really the Union objective. Um, there had been, you know, sparse fighting uh, in vicinity of the Eastwoods the night before, so soldiers knew that a battle was imminent. Um, but about first light, they start moving through a cornfield. It's, uh, I believe, doubles the day's division, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, because you have Doubleday, Ricketts, and Meade are the division commanders, but they'll begin the advance crossing uh, the cornfield. They will engage throughout the southern edge of, of the cornfield. The Confederates are opposite them, um, just outside the corn. Um, pretty sharp fighting. Uh, behind them, you've, you've got the, you know, you've got Ricketts division. Um, I may have got those two mixed up, but then you'll, that division is spearheaded really by a brigade of Westerners, uh, you know, at the time known as the, you know, Black Hat Brigade. They may or may not have been bestowed there, the name they're more familiar by of the Iron Brigade a couple days earlier at South Mountain. Uh, but these are three regiments of Wisconsiners, or Wisconsinites, the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana, and they will move on I basically straddling uh, the Hagerstown Turnpike, two regiments in the corn and uh, two regiments off to the west side of the turnpike, uh, where they will engage elements of Jackson's wing um, in and just beyond the cornfield. So that pretty much covers the, the earliest part of the morning phase. Okay. Now, um, it's described as artillery held the cornfield. So, Tyler, would you like to jump in and talk about the artillery on the bridge? No, and absolutely. So, in that morning when you have those elements of the Union forces moving through the cornfields and uh, getting ready to meet with Confederate forces there on the outer perimeter, you're going to have a deluge of artillery shells raining from both sides. So across the Antietam Creek and over on this plateau by the Dunker Church. Now the Dunker Church being that whitewashed brick building owned by that German pacifist sect Dunkers um, sits really, really nicely on this rise of ground that almost commands the field at that point. And it's arguably said that the Dunker Church could potentially be the key to the battlefield here. And it's definitely the objective point of a um, hooker here on September 17th. But this artillery duel that takes place is uh, dubbed artillery held, Darren, like you just said. And the reason for that is the amount of concentrated fire that is arcing back and forth between the positions. Um, and this leads into one of my favorite stories of Antietam, where we get a little personal there. And uh, for those that have followed the Unfiltered Historian, you've seen that I posted recently about an ancestor of mine who fought with Parker's Virginia Battery, who was uh, in Stephen D. Lee's battery. So this, this artillery battery parked here by the Dunker Church, Stephen D. Lee is in charge of, and Parker's battery fits into that <coughs> position there as well. well. It's not even 20 to 30 minutes into the onslaught of this artillery duel when Duffy's going to be wounded and taken out of the fight. Now, when he's wounded, he's commanding a gun there on that plateau, and a mini ball will slam into his leg. And when that, that mini ball slams into his leg... He immediately crawls off the field, and somewhere in the rear of the battery, he's able to find a surgeon, and the surgeon realizes that the ball just needs to be simply extracted. It's nothing that's going to cause or require amputation, but it's still something that needs to be obviously addressed. You don't want to walk around with a lead ball stuck in your leg the rest of your life. So he is offered whiskey and denies the whiskey, declines that, saying that he is a good Christian Irishman. He would just take water. 
and without any anesthetics at all, the ball was removed. And now Parker's battery doesn't stop firing just because Zuffy's taking out. Uh, in fact, Parker's battery stays on the field for a decent amount of time, considering what they're facing. There's another story about a young uh, boy, and for those that don't know, Parker's battery is known as the boy battery for the uh, median age range of the battery itself. Uh, Captain William Watts Parker is a doctor, physician out of Richmond, who has, I don't want to say commandeered, but almost kind of urged some of his patients to join his battery. Uh, S.D. Lee himself will give the men a very rousing speech prior, uh, just prior to Antietam, say that you men have been, or you boys have been where men only dare to go. And uh, the name Boy Battery really has just kind of stuck from there. Uh, but while they're fighting there, this incident takes place where there's a member of the battery who Parker is trying to ultimately save from this fight. Um, the age is just too young to be fighting in his eyes. And the father of this child wants him back home and wants him removed from the battery. So in an effort to keep him away from the fight, Parker kind of keeps him to the rear of the caissons. Well, unfortunately, that's actually going to be the cause of this young man's death. And I believe his last name is uh, Kenny or Kelly, one of the two. I'd have to look up in the Parker's battery book to make sure and just to confirm that. But ultimately, he's killed at 15 years old, just behind the battery there when that duel is taking place. And uh, Parker's battery is ultimately going to retire to a position that is located in what is today the Antietam National Cemetery. But the ground that they were holding and that part of S.D. Lee's line was, again, arguably a very important part of that battlefield sitting right there on that plateau outside of the Dunker Church across the uh, Hagerstown Pike from it, at least. Okay, cool. Um, Tim, can I bring you in? Because um, uh, during the cornfield, there is uh, some hungry Texans. Can you tell us that story? Yep, some hungry sure. Texans. Um, yeah. So a couple things. Uh, let me reiterate. Right. So I said Jacob Poffenberger Farm. It's actually Joseph Poffenberger Farm. And it was, you know, both the divisions of Doubleday and Ricketts attacked Ricketts was closer to the Eastwoods, Doubleday closer to the Westwoods. So they basically overwhelmed the, the Confederate divisions. Initially, you know, you had uh, Lott, just, uh, General Lawton's uh, brigade division uh, at the southern end. Uh, you had Hayes's uh, Louisianans there. Um, and they're shifting constantly. The Confederates are moving around all over the place. You have regiments just mixing but eventually the, the weight of union numbers begins to tell but well at the time all this is happening you know still mourning uh you have uh john bell hood's uh division um namely the texas brigade in vicinity of dunker church and they're actually sitting down to eat their first meal in a couple days uh so these are as you said as you know pretty hungry texans um, so they're ordered to form up and they'll move across the Hagerstown Turnpike. They're livid that they, you know, they're missing their first meal. So, and the entire Confederate positions under threat and they'll, you know, form up opposite the Dunker Church across the Hagerstown Turnpike and, and what the, you know, American Battlefield Trust has labeled the epicenter of the battle, the area between, uh, across the Hagerstown Pike and between the, 
between Dunker Church and the southern end of the cornfield. Um, and they'll launch a counterattack into the cornfield, um, push the Union troops before them, and make it pretty much the other end of, of the cornfield, uh, where they'll run into another Union division just upcoming under George Gordon Meade. It's his division of Pennsylvania Reserves, uh, which at this stage of the war is in the First Corps. Uh, they'll deliver a volley and, and cut down the Texas Brigade mercifully. I mean, that's kind of the brigade's name somewhat a misnomer. They have the 1st, 4th, and 5th Texas, uh, the 18th Georgia, and then Hampton's Legion of uh, South Carolinians. Um, but you, you notice in the uh, Trayani painting there, there is the Texas flag. I believe that is the 1st Texas and they'll lose multiple color guards. They'll end up losing the colors in the corn. Uh, in the first, Texas will suffer 82% casualty rate in the cornfield. In the meantime, they're catching flanking fire from the other side of the Hagerstown Turnpike from a battery that's quite famous, um, especially those who are familiar with the Iron Brigade. You know, it's uh, Battery B, 4th U.S. Artillery, uh, formerly commanded at the beginning of, of the war by John Gibbon. Uh, who is now the commander of the Iron Brigade. And he's actually helping to work the battery at this time, uh, which is more or less for the next couple of years going to be attached pretty much to the Iron Brigade. Uh, he'll run up the elevating screw, which means basically pointing the barrel down towards the ground and fire double loads of canister bouncing across the road into the faces of uh, Hampton's Legion, the Georgians, and, and the Texans that are forming there on the fence to, to combat this flanking fire that they get. So, Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so uh, Hooker's Corps are in the cornfield, and then they need support. So enter the 12th Corps. So talk about the 12th Corps coming onto the field, please, if you wouldn't mind, Tim. Yeah, uh, 12th Corps got a new commander at the time, uh, by guy by the name of Joseph Mansfield. Uh, and there's his monument there on the battlefield in vicinity of uh, where he died. There's some discrepancy as to where that actually was. Uh, but his coral kind of advanced from the north and northeast. Um, and he's actually wounded pretty early in the fight. Uh, he's co-located himself with the, the 10th Maine. So if you've seen any of the videos on our podcast, I am a a fan of the 10th Maine Hound up grandfathered <laughs> Antietam, but I do have a cousin, a uh, di fairly distant cousin. But uh, So I've been following this regiment for, for a while, and they'll basically fight at the northern end edge, northeastern edge of the East Woods. And the fighting's actually ferocious there. It's somewhat overlooked given the ferocity of the fighting in the cornfield. Uh, but it's really back and forth. Union troops will push into East Woods. The Confederates will push them out. More Union reinforcements will arrive. So it is uh, a free-for-all. Every bit is the free-for-all they label the West Woods at. Uh, but Mansfield's wounded. Um, they're along with the 10th Maine uh, at the northeastern part of East Woods. And will be, you know, lift off his horse and carried to the rear uh, where he will later die in a Union field hospital. Uh, Corps command, Corps command is taken over, I think, by Alpheus Williams, who will, you know, he has the, the misfortune or fortune of continuously being elevated to temporary command of the Corps. Um, you know, he'll be in command briefly 
several times. Uh, Gettysburg being one of them. Um, not really, I don't recall off the top of my head if he actually obtains full command of the Corps because I think it when they merge with the 11th Corps later, it will go to Slocum, but, or to Hooker, I believe. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but the 12th Corps, you know, for probably a third consecutive fight actually fights really well, despite having been one of the, you know, Shenandoah Valley victims of uh, Stonewall Jackson. They fight really well at Cedar Mountain. They fight, uh, they, they fail, but fight well at second, Mona at second Manassas or Bull Run. Uh, and then they fight really well at Antietam. And it's set really part of a trend. Um, so, yeah, but, that cover, Des? Yeah, thank you. Um, Tyler, do you want to add anything about Mansfield and uh, that part of the battle? Um, nothing about Mansfield, but I, uh, something of interest came up today when I was doing just a little quick research on um, some of the features of the battlefield itself. Uh, and this is uh, a little off closer to the cornfield and the Dunker Church area, but uh, I wanted to talk quickly about the Muma Farm, if that was okay, Daz. Okay. Um, this is one of the things that I kind of overlook when I – Looking, I think not. Maybe not many of us do, but I, I know I for, for sure do. When I look into some of the civilian tolls that uh, is taken at this battle, and one of those is the property destruction that you're you're seeing at the Muma Farm. So the Muma Farm itself was built in 1790, and that was built on a place or an eminence known as Smith's Hill. And when it was built, it was initially owned by Jacob Muma, who would give it to his son Samuel, which would be the wartime owner and we're talking the Civil War, who would then turn it over to his son. So I'm corrected on that, actually. His son Samuel would be the one to own it during the Civil War. As the story goes with the Muma Farm, on the 15th, Confederates will actually visit the Muma Farm and sort of warn the Muma family that there is going to you know, be a presence of troops here and that it might be of haste to get out to evacuate and so they do and Samuel Jr. and his brother wanted to return for some spare clothing in case they were going to be gone for a while and they're going to make that return on the evening of the 16th and when they do they actually get detained by D.H. Hill and his staff and the reason for the detainment is to try to get a better understanding of the roads and just some of the local byways that they're able to use if needs be when it comes to military purposes. Well, during the battle, the Muma Farm will host many different troop uh, movements uh, and a lot of different scenarios happening there. But one thing that's of note is General Roswell Ripley, a Confederate general, will actually order the Muma Farm burned to the ground. And the Confederates go to approach the house. They see an open window, which presumably was left open by Samuel Jr., and they drop their torch in, and the house goes up in flames. It's also of note to know that the the destruction of that property was a lot heavier than one might seem to think. Not only are you losing your house, but at the start of the Civil War, the Muma farm boasted of 16 acres of corn, 60 acres of wheat, 20 to 30 acres of pasture, their livestock, they were uh, running somewhere around 200 chicken, 15 hogs, 20 heads of cattle, and a vast number of horses. All of that presumably was also gone when the battle took place, because obviously horses are in great need. All that livestock could feed an army, if not just kind of chased away from the 
cacophonia battle surrounding this farmstead. So it's of note to kind of remember, too, when we're talking about a lot of the soldier accounts that happened, that some of these civilians that are living on the battlefield lose everything, too. The, the Muma farm was absolutely ruined after this battle. So I, I just kind of wanted to talk just briefly about that. I mean, there's a lot of, um, um, you know, accounts from soldiers seeing this huge orange glow at that sector of the field. And that's attributed to the burning Mama farm or Muma farm. Oh, wow. Thanks for adding that. Yeah, that yeah no problem. Thank yeah, you for yeah, letting me share. It's nice to hear that, that side of the story. It's not just about the fighting. It's about the people that live there. Um, yeah, right. And, you know, they actually moved to another house in the area that's very famous, too. If you're looking down at the uh, Burnside Bridge sector, there's two houses really close to that, the Otto Farm and the Sherrick Farm. And uh, the Muma family would live at the Sherrick Farm until their home was finally rebuilt in June of 1863. So that's something else worth noting that there's still there, there, there's a community here in Sharpsburg. Mm. And it's really evident because you're seeing the Muma family actually living with the Sherrick family over there by the uh Burnside Bridge, as it would be known later. Not We know it as the Rohrbach Bridge if we're studying it. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so sure. anyway, anyway, we're going we're gonna to stay with the cornfield for a minute because obviously when I visited, you guys took me to a really cool place. And it involves the Iron Brigade. Um, and the Iron Brigade uh, goes around the cornfield. And then you took me to this cool little place, which I wouldn't have known was there unless I was with you guys. So, Tim, would you like to talk about the ledge that's there, please? Oh, that is such a flattering picture of me, too. Thank there you. So this is us, guys. Sorry, just before you start, Tim, this is us. Um, there is a video on the Unfilled Historians YouTube channel. Go and check it out. I did post it up the other day, and it is about this. Uh, Tim, tell us about this, please, mate. So, uh, as I mentioned, so early in the morning, you're, you're talking before 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, Gibbons Brigade enters action in the cornfield. So the second and the sixth Wisconsin are in the cornfield proper moving to the south edge the seventh and then wisconsin and the 19th indiana however move around to the right across uh, the farm of uh dr miller uh who owns the cornfield also the pasture land across the hagerstown hagerstown pike so they will m move to the west um and if you remember when we were there the train Below this ledge, so behind the camera, is low ground. So they're completely out of sight to anyone, up, you know, in vicinity of the cornfield. Uh, very low terrain. Uh, there's part of the, you know, the West Woods kind of moves up north there. Um, and there are no Confederates in there at, at that time. So what they find is uh, moving up. Back towards the sound of the guns, they, they see the, the hill off to their left, so they climb it. And when they get to this ledge uh, where the picture's taken, they are looking at the backs of the Confederates lined up. I don't know if in the picture you can see it too well here, uh, but you're looking at the backs of the Confederates lined up on the western side of the Hagerstown Pike firing into the cornfield. Uh, these are Gr Jones, uh, I think David R. Jones and Grigsby's brigades at first. There's some Louisianians under Hayes there. Um, so really, the, the ledge provides a natural fortification. Um, and it's even better for the 7th Wisconsin, 19th Indiana, is it continues to slope up to this uh, ridgeline or to this fence line. 
Um, so the Confederates are not only, you know, right in front of them, it, it not necessarily point blank range. It's probably about 60 yards or so. Uh, but they're also silhouetted in front of them, which makes the, the shooting much easier. And with all the noise, the, the Wisconsinites and the Indians are able to, you know, shoot pretty much unfettered into the backs of the Confederates. And eventually they figure out and they route back to the, to the South. Um, but it, it provided um, an incredible opportunity for these Iron Brigade men there. And it's, once again, it's a place not a whole lot of people go to or, or is frequently talked about. No, and that was what was really cool in my, seeing that in my visit. So I really appreciate you taking me there. So if anyone visits, visits Antietam, please uh, go and see that. Um, okay, so the battle's going to shift um, now to um, a really famous uh, farm lane and uh, known as, which will be known as Bloody Lane eventually. Um, so, Tyler, do you want to start with this one, mate? Yeah, absolutely. I can take us off here. So now we're looking closer to midday. And a uh, thing about Antietam to kind of really keep in the back of your minds as we're going through this today is that the battle is fought in sectors or sort of in sections. There's there's like actions that are kind of moving throughout and it's almost in or phases. You know what? That's a better word for it. We should say the battle is being fought in phases. So we're looking at midday and we're looking at sort of a, a natural defensive position. Now I say natural and the reason it's, it's sort of serving as a natural trench, but it's an old wagon road that the Confederates under D.H. Hill are going to be able to secure. And these Confederates under D.H. Hill are trying to stop French's big division comparatively, D.H. Hill's commanding roughly 2,500 men. And French has almost double that, if not more than double. Uh, so French is attacking over some ground that's less favorable to the Confederates who are in this naturally, you know, jutted, sunken wagon road. And French is going to launch brigade-sized assaults against D.H. Hill's Confederates in those breastworks. And it's going to start around 9.30. So I say midday, but, you know, when we're talking Civil War, we, this battle started at the crack of dawn. The first, once that rain sort of filtered out, that fog was still hanging, the battle starts. We're looking at it close to 9.30 when the first few of those brigades are going to move forward and try to hit D.H. Hill's bend in the road there. There's a significant ferocity to this. There's a line of troops moving forward and they're going to get rather close to the Confederates there in the bloody lane, as it's later called when they're told to fire on them. And the first line sees staggering numbers fall. There's going to be another brigade behind it. That's very famously known as the Irish brigade who will also be using something very interesting here at uh, the bloody lane. They're going to be firing with buck and ball. You're, you're, predecessor to a uh, buckshot, if you will. And that's really only effective when you're up close. It's, it's not something you want to use when you're far away. So this means that the Irish Brigade is going to have to get a little close for this to be effective. Um, eventually, the Bloody Lane is overrun by the Union forces attacking it, and Confederates will start to melt back into the Piper cornfield directly behind it. Uh, Tim, if you have some more you want to add into this, please help me out. I hope I covered just briefly kind of what's happening at the Bloody Lane, giving an overview. I'm sure you could, you know, dive a little more in depth into what's going on over here. Yeah, one thing that I actually pointed out, I think there is a perception 
that because the the attacks, you know, occurred piecemeal, and they did, um, that, you know, they they occurred at separate phases of the day. And one of the things that came out over a weekend, and if you read uh, Priest's book with his breakdown mm-hmm. um, by time, mm-hmm. you see that the the morning, afternoon, evening phase thing really isn't necessarily the case. Um, part of the issue is is the the second core that's launching this attack. They get badly split up, but they're in action or they're cross Antietam Creek by eight thirty in the morning. Right. Um, so you have French's division is attacking round about nine o'clock. Um, so midday wouldn't be something to really call yeah. it midday yeah it's not midday it the best way to phrase it is kind of like the middle phase and a, a lot some people think also like french hit just like the the uh left edge whereas richardson hit more the right side mm-hmm. of of the lane that's also not really true most of the maps like this one i think that's park service Shows yeah. it that way. French is kind of straddled. Was yes, was slightly to the left of that bend there in Hills Line, um, but it really straddled it. You had the Eighth Ohio more, and if you're standing there, you know the, the where the about where the picture's taken, and you look to the left, what's right in front of you? It's this giant hill. The field of fire is actually pretty awful from the Confederate perspective. Yes, um, it is. And we discussed that. In anything, you know, in order to see anything from that part of the lane, you basically have to be on your tiptoes at that fence line. So the natural trench in that part of the road is useless. Now, on the left side of it, and that's more where John Gordon is, or John B. Gordon in the 6th uh, Alabama, I believe. Um, you know, they're there shooting uphill, and they have good line of sight up that hill towards kind of the visitor center right of it. Uh, looking towards the Muma farm. And there, you know, they're able to get a, a better bead. But the 8th Ohio has better luck, and they're on the right side of that uh, roulette lane uh, that, that pretty much divides the two parts of the sunken road. Um, and there, they're able to, to get better cover. And it's really the 8th Ohio that's the first regiment that starts inflicting casualties on, on the Confederates. You know, they stand there at the military crest just you know where they can duck down get a little bit of shelter pop back up and and fire um and yeah eventually they run out of ammunition too and then richardson's division will come up more to the right um to include units under you know uh francis barlow's there um and they hit more they do hit more the right side of of the road kind of down towards where that observation tower is where the field of fire is longer, but the Confederates just don't have the, the strength to spread and cover that. Um, I guess one of the other interesting stories is that of John Gordon. You yeah. know, he'll be, hit, he'll be hit in the, you know, wounded multiple times. He'll be wounded in the shoulder. Um, and I think he's wounded in the arm as well, but the big one is the event ends up getting wounded in the face and there's a he know, rarely ever got photographed from, from the left side, showing the left side of his face after that. But after war, there is one picture of him showing the left side of the 
but still a very clear hole uh, in his cheek. And that caused him to pass out, and he fell down face first into his cap. And he would have drowned in his own blood if it weren't for the fortunate fact that a federal bullet had entered and pierced a hole in his cap, allowing the blood to drain out. Um, Otherwise, the Confederacy would have been denied his, his services at a relatively early stage. Keep in mind, he's just a regimental commander. Um, he will eventually end the war as one of Lee's corps commanders um, is, and is generally regarded tactically as, as one of Lee's best. Um, but at this stage, he's still somewhat obscure. Um, and, and, but another thing that Gord, from Gordon at this is, you know, he'll comment on, call it the pageantry of the attack, and he'll talk about how big a shame it was to, to wreck you know, the scene of what he called martial beauty. Mm. You no, know, because the, the second corps was pretty impressive moving across. And it could have been, you know, even worse. You know, Cedric's division got split off, you know, I won't say lost. Um, and it's debatable which, whether Cedric or uh, French and Richardson were the ones that s- split off. Um, but if all three had been there, that attacking that area could have been potentially even worse uh, for the Confederates than it ended up being because after they smashed through um, and pushed the Confederates back, there's really very little um, off on the other side of the Piper Farm, which is it's in the center picture there. It's what's off to the right of the observation tower and behind. There's no infantry there. And in fact, General Longstreet brings his own staff up to a cannon and directs his staff firing this cannon to, to slow the, the Federals all while he's wearing carpet slippers. <laughs> so pretty, pretty. I heard that story first from you while we were up in that tower. Cause I was like, I've never heard that before. That was a very fun one to kind of hear out there. Yep. So yeah. um, I guess that's it. Yeah. And, and, when you look at the numbers, you you can see why it was called Bloody Lane in the end, because uh, uh, 5,600 men dead or wounded in this, just, in this part of the battlefield is horrendous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, guys, um, let's move to the next phase then. So we have um, one of the most famous parts of the battle, and that is uh, Burnside's Bridge. Um, the Ninth Corps have been ordered not to move until told, um, and then the delay in the orders, they don't actually move till 10 a.m. So, Tim, do you want to start with Burnside's Bridge? Sure. Um, so, again, this is um, taking place around about uh, 10.30 in the morning. Uh, you'll have um, the 2nd Maryland, I believe, is the first unit that's going to going to try to to attack across what's known as the lower bridge. So there are three bridges at the time. This is just known as the the lower bridge over Antietam Creek, uh, pretty much directly opposite Sharpsburg there on the map. At the Boonesboro Road, you'll have the middle bridge, and that's really being addressed by elements of Fitz John Porter's Fifth Corps. But you have Burnside's Ninth Corps, relative newcomers uh, to the Army Army of the Potomac. Uh, They were refugees, so to speak, from uh, John Pope's Army of Virginia, and they're under a new corps commander. Uh, uh, it's 
just a couple days prior to this, they'd been under command of Major General Jesse Reno, who unfortunately was killed on South Mountain. Um, as we talked about in, in our podcast uh, a little while, a couple weeks ago, or a week or so ago, whatever. Um, so now, you know, Ambrose Burnside's back basically in command of the Corps, though he'll say he's a wing commander, but this will be labeled as his operation, even if he isn't. I think he's giving this command through Cox, am I correct? Let me double check. I don't want to misspeak. Jacob Cox, you're right. Yeah, through Jacob Cox. Um, so he's got a couple objectives. He's trying to not only get across the bridge, which is, of course, the easiest route, but he's going to send a division down to the south to try to find a Ford. Uh, Bodler's Ford, I think, is that one. Am I correct? Is that the name of it? Baudelaire's Ford is correct. It's like Jeopardy over here. Oh, sweet. Um, so they will, or no, Snavely's Ford. It's right there. Sorry, Baudelaire's is um um yeah yeah it's further south. I I'm, it's not great. Right. Yeah, Snavely's so Ford. Snavely's Ford. Um, so he'll send uh, elements of uh his core his core down that way, while the rest will try to get across the middle bridge, um or the lower bridge excuse me i'm all over the place right now we could call it rohrbach bridge too if you really wanted to yeah yes mm-hmm. you could so the first uh, cross will be the second maryland and the sixth new hampshire um oh it's rodman's division heading towards snavely sport so just totally overlooked uh and the confederates opposing them are, are really in a fix because and Lee gets a lot of credit for this, but it also, you know, had, had side effects. So throughout the battle, as Union forces are putting pressure first in the north and then towards the middle, towards Blay Lane, which is also still kind of on the north, northern sector, if you think about it. He's pulling from his, his middle section there across, around the Boonsboro Pike, what's now the cemetery area. And the lower sector, you know, you have Armistead's Brigade, Kemper, and, and those guys will move further north towards the town just, just in case that fighting around the Muma Farm, uh, around Bloody Lane gets worse. That way they can, you know, pitch into it. So um, Burnside... Jacob Cox will be uh, there on the east side. And with the picture there of, of Blay Lane doesn't show, you know, it, it's high ground on that side. It, the ridge goes down. And their first attempt will be from below the bridge. In fact, the first couple attempts will be from below the bridge. Uh, the 2nd the Maryland, 6th New Hampshire will try to run up the road that, that comes there from the south up towards the bridge. They don't get there. They're basically shot down en route. Um, the next attempt will be no more successful. Um, you've got the 35th mass also moved from the, from the South, you know, don't get very far. And then you have, um, which brigade is it? Ferrero's brigade, I believe, um, tries from the North side, um, I think that's 48th Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
Um, and they basically get pinned down there along the stone wall opposite this side. And finally, there are the two 51sts, the 51st New York and the 51st mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, called a demi brigade if you want. Uh, they'll rush down the hill from directly opposite the bridge, you know, and, you know, they're basically promised, you know, they're, you know, they're, they want their whiskey ration. So they ask their commander, you know, if we take the bridge, can we get our, you know, our whiskey? And they, you know, commander responds by, you know, by God, yes. And, we, you know, one will take play, take cover there. That is an original witness tree, probably the coolest single artifact there on the battlefield. Uh, one regiment will take, you know, cover and return fire against the Georgians uh, uh, defending the opposite bank. Um, under uh, Tombs, and that's Tombs's view. Uh, the other one will be on the right side of the bridge. That's the 51st Pennsylvania. No, 51st Pennsylvania on the on the uh, stone wall. 51st New York on the fence on the right side of the bridge as we're looking at it here. Um, Returning fire. And finally, you know, and really what is a soldier's fight, individual men just start to rush across the bridge. Uh, Men will fall on the bridge, but eventually, you know, they'll carry it, drive the Confederates out of rifle pits and from, you know, uh, the stone quarry where they were also taking cover. That first picture from the Confederate side actually is from vicinity of the quarry. Um, And that's the 20th Georgia there, the second Georgia uh, from the quarry to the south, um, but they'll be driven back, and then Burnside's men will begin to stream across. But they don't immediately continue their advance, and that's what ultimately proves costly. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you want me to go into that now, or um, yeah, just hold fire on that for a moment, if you don't mind. So, Tyler, do you want to add anything about um, Burnside's bridge? No, I think Tim's doing a fantastic yeah, job cool. of covering that. Yeah. And again, like you said, Tim, so it takes two hours for him to get across the bridge with his guys. I mean, mind you, saying that there must have been a lot of men on the bridge to move before you can get across there. Um, but um, like you said, um, the Confederates are going to get pushed back into Sharpsburg, leading to a very famous person turning up. It's like a Hollywood movie. You couldn't write it. And Tyler, I'm going to get you to talk about this. And it's Hill's Light Division. That's correct. So A.P. Hill's Light Division. They have a heck of a march ahead of them from this position. They're going to start out around Harper's Ferry today, West Virginia. Hill's Light Division is going to have to embark on an exhausting 17-mile march in order to get to the position on the battlefield. By the time that Hill's Division actually arrives, Burnside's men are almost on the outskirts, if not the outskirts of Sharpsburg itself. And this caught the Federal Army completely unaware when 3,000 Confederates show up and are directly in front of them. The plan initially under Burnside was to try to move around the weakened Confederate flank and move directly onto Sharpsburg. And theory, that's cutting Lee's army off from retreat. That, that's where Bodler's Ford will come into play. And that's over by uh, Shepherdstown. So the 79th New York is one of the ones we'll feature here they're going to be one of the few that are actually able to break through confederate lines in the divisions uh jones's outnumbered division will be taken by the 79th new york 
on a place known as Cemetery Hill, and I'm sure you can imagine why it is called Cemetery Hill. No, we're not talking about Gettysburg. We are indeed talking about Antietam. At 3.30 p.m., that is when Hill will arrive on the field, and two brigades will move southeast to guard the flank, and the other three, roughly 2,000, move to the right of Toombs Brigade and launch their infamous counterattack. Brigadier General Maxi Gregg, who will ultimately fall at Fredericksburg in December of 1862, had a brigade of South Carolinians, which would attack uh, some of Rodman's men. I believe the 16th Connecticut is the one there on the flank that they hit. And they hit him in the cornfield of the one of the farms I mentioned earlier. Um, the owner of the farm is named John Otto. So this is the Otto farm. And the Connecticut men had been in service for roughly three weeks when they were attacked. So their line just evaporated. Uh, they took about 185 casualties. And the 4th Rhode Island, to their right, pretty much came up with the same results. The 8th Connecticut was by themselves the only one left. They were enveloped and taken down the hill back towards the creek they had just crossed, known as the Antietam. Gave the 9th Corps an aggregate of 20% casualties after crossing that bridge. So uh, AP Hill's Light Division wasn't so light when you really think about it. They came and were Lee's hammer and anvil at this point. They, They really struck a blow to the ninth corps who had virtually almost taken the confederate army there on september 17th okay and tim do you want to go back into a bit more detail about why it takes two hours to get across the bridge as you was going to say yeah sure so it it really it boils down to this so there there was a backup um, it, the bridge is narrow as you're looking at. So you've got to rapidly move men across this bridge. And if you go there and you've been, keep in mind, you've been fighting. It's coming up midday. It's still warm this time of the year. But, you know, especially if you look from the Confederate perspective, once you're across this bridge, it is straight uphill. And then, you get mm-hmm. to the top of that hill and you look, mm-hmm. you go past it. And what do you have beyond that? Another hill and then another hill. And it's very up and down. So the, the train there could not be more different on the southern part of town below the Boonesboro Road than it is from the northern side. It, it's just ravine and gully after gully after ravine. It, it's very broken train until you get up. To, to where the Confederate position pretty much is just on the, on the southern end of, of the town and along the Harper's Ferry Road, where it's finally, you know, flat tableland up there. But below that, if you're looking, you just see the rolling down ridges. And, um, and it, yeah, sorry, but it's, and also it's 100 feet upwards, isn't it? It's 100 feet in height. Yeah, and that's right? just above the bridge. Yeah. And, and you've got to get divisions across this bridge and keep in mind there's bodies and you've got to move artillery and wagons and you've got to resupply your men who have been fighting for two hours so so it is not a simple task and you to a degree you probably have to sympathize a little bit with with the ninth corps men and with with their leaders who are trying to get this attack restarted and at this point it really is towards the end of the day um but it was it was not easy. Um, and one thing Tyler mentioned, the fourth Rhode Island, that's another interesting 
distant family connection. So within the fourth Rhode Island was a guy named uh, a musician. Uh, don't know if he was carrying a weapon that day or not, but he was wounded. His name was Calixa Lavalle. Um, he was like a fourth cousin of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about him is this guy was uh, born in Canada. So had lived uh, for a few years in Rhode Island. After the war, he became the guy famous for writing the the music uh, for what has become what's become known as O Canada, the Canadian national anthem. But he was a soldier in the Fourth Rhode Island, uh, wounded in action there, September seventeenth at Antietam, in uh, Maxi Gregg's portion of APL's counterattack. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on then um, to why the middle crossing is not utilized um and could you could you tell us a little bit more about the middle crossing if you don't mind tim so there's a couple different ways to to think about that and interpretations are somewhat changing historically a lot of people have said uh, mcclellan didn't commit his forces um they committed him piecemeal and that he kept large portions of them back namely the the fifth and sixth corps as it turns out in in the american battlefield trust and that's a good picture that you've got put up there because that's from that high ground in vicinity of the visitor center Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that later on yeah so the that was the key terrain and after this you know the second corps you know cedric's division gets pushed Mm -hmm. back you know in the in the all at the same time, and it wasn't nearly as piecemeal as people may think. It wasn't just the first corps, then the twelfth corps, then Cedric's division, and then French, and then Richardson. Many of these things are happening simultaneously. Probably the most important one is the twelfth corps division of uh, uh, George Sears Green, which moves in just in vicinity. His right flank is going to rest just north of the Dunker Church there. His left will kind of bend back onto this high ground where the cannons are in this painting. But eventually, the 6th Corps, a division of, of the 6th Corps, will move up and will occupy that uh, terrain. So the 6th Corps, actually, they had come from uh, the Maryland Heights area. Um, they had been part of um, McClellan's Reserve meaning that at this stage towards the, you know, late afternoon, you know, mid to late afternoon, the only reserve he has left is the fifth Corps under his most trusted commander, Fitzjohn Porter. Um, and there, there's a couple things about the fifth Corps that, that make stands out. You know, they, he's got a division of regulars. These are the professional soldiers of the union army. Um, and the regulars will send out, you know, they'll cross, uh, the bridge. He also has Pleasanton's Cavalry Division there, um, kind of attached to the Fifth Corps. But that's what McClellan thinks he has. And he is not aware whether there's, he was wrong here. Uh, that is up for debate. But opposing the, the Fifth Corps, the, the regulars, um, namely I think the 12th was, was the big one sending out skirmishers up, meeting very little resistance Lee just had nothing left. He had some batteries there on the Cemetery Hill area, but there really was not much infantry opposing him. Um, but the reason was, was, you know, that was McClellan's reserve. Um, mm. 
now imagine that you're McClellan and you still have that and you, things have been going well and now you've got hit on your southern flank by that counterattack by E.P. Hill. Um, mm -hmm. You're not forced back across the bridge, but you've got to start thinking, you know. And we mm -hmm. do know, of course, McClellan liked to overestimate Confederate strength. He didn't know he outnumbered Lee two to one. Um, so it seems that that at that at that time the the counterattack you know was realizing all of mcclellan's worst fears um he didn't know that lee was as tapped out if obviously more tapped out than he was in terms of strength so okay cool thanks for adding that um so anyway as we know it's known as the bloodiest the single bloodiest day in american history and i just want to talk about the casualties uh, before we move on to the next subject so it was well over two twenty two thousand uh, casualties uh, wounded dead or missing um, um the biggest uh, loss of life uh, during a battle before that was shiloh and that was two days so you know this really does shock the nation and we're again we're going to talk a little bit about that later on with some famous photographs that were taken but um, it is technically a Union victory, and this is what Lincoln's been waiting for. And, of course, it gives him the opportunity to release the um, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Tim, do you want to just quickly gloss over that for us? Sure. So Lincoln had actually decided in the summer that he was going to do this, that he was going to uh, release the Emancipation Proclamation to free the... Uh, enslaved persons living in the areas then currently in rebellion. So that's key. Um, however, members of his cabinet, um, to include Seward, Secretary of State Seward, persuade him that it would look like an act of desperation after the, the relative disaster um, of the Peninsula Campaign. And then you have Second Manassas. So yes, Lincoln's waiting for a victory. And tactically speaking, he captured, you know, McClellan captures train. He captures that area around the Dunker Church. He captures the Bloody Lane. You know, he gets across Burnside Bridge. Does he, he route Lee's army? No. But Lee's Maryland campaign has nowhere to go at this point, but back across um, into Shepherdstown um, for an operational and operational victory uh, for McClellan. Lincoln turns it into a strategic victory, however, because he'll change the, the focus of war up to this point. All you heard was, uh, you know, preserve the Union. And this will lend moral way to also do other things. Um, and Lincoln showed his, his strategic genius, if you will, with this, because he reckoned that he, by making the war at least partially um, about, about freeing, ending slavery um, as a war measure, that there was no way the European nations, France and Britain, namely, would come in on the side, side of slavery. And he was right about that because Europeans would talk about it. Um, so there was, there was that. And yes, it, it causes a lot of controversy, even in the North. Um, but in the end, he's able to claim 
this moral high ground. And no, you know, the slaves are still being held in Delaware, a union state. They're still enslaved. Um, those in areas that have been already been captured, namely Tennessee, um, you know, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, any area where Union troops had, had, by the letter of the Emancipation Proclamation, areas under Union occupation, slaves were not freed. Um, it was only those slaves in areas then in rebellion at the date this took effect, which was the first day of January 1863. Um, so at the time of Antietam, soldiers didn't have wind of this, but come a couple months later in the vicinity of Fredericksburg, this is going to be very controversial among Union soldiers. Um, so. Okay, thank you, Tim. Um, okay, let's move on to this guy, because this is one of the most famous parts of uh, Antietam, and that is the photography side of it. Absolutely. Um, and photography is, uh, you know, is being used at this stage, and it's and it and again, it's going to shock the nation. So, Alexandra Gardner, born in Scotland in 1856, Gardner decides to emigrate to America, eventually settling in New York. Um, he then soon uh, soon finds employment with Matthew Brady as a photographer, and on September the 19th, 1862, this is two days after the battle, Gardner becomes the first of Brady's photographers to take images of the dead on the battlefield. And he takes over 70 photographs and they were put on display in October in a gallery. And this really shocks people. And uh, I, I do have some of these photographs, so we'll, we'll go through them. Um, um, not all of them, obviously. Um, some of them are hard to find. But, yeah, I mean, this must have been really shocking. What, what, what's your um, view on this, Tyler? Well, this is really the first time you're bringing the dead to the doorstep of everybody at home. And that, and the reason we say that is because you're right. You know, when Gardner shows up two days later, you, most of the Union are already buried at this point. But there's a lot of Confederate dead still on the battlefield. And what a shock this is to send home. And how exactly are they sending this home? What you know, why is this being published? Well, it's not necessarily being published as much as it is being shown in an exhibit. And I believe the exhibit's in New York City at first. Um, Matthew yeah, Breed. That's it is. It is New York City. Okay. So there's a, a exhibit set up and um, <clears throat> well, that, that picture right there, I want to talk on too in a second. Um, but when this exhibit set up, I, I, I had a personal experience with this exhibit in a way. The Pry House had set up uh, about a year and a half ago. I went with a buddy of mine to the Pry House Museum at Antietam. We went up and did some of the medical museum stuff and then went up to the very top where they had a special exhibit to where you could walk around and view these pictures as they would have seen it in the New York gallery in 1862 with the magnifying glass and everything. And it was still even hundred and, you know, a little less than 160 years later, it was just absolutely powerful to see those pictures and know that humanity could come to this. So to be in the moment in 1862 and to first see these sites of what a battlefield actually looks like, I mean, it shatters the romanticism of war, entirely and not only that but it shows you the the toll a battle takes and antietam like you said earlier Daz, is the bloodiest battle to that point it's still it's still to this day the bloodiest single day in american history and to bring this home to folks to see it it really i think drives home the horror of the american civil war and the the shattering of that romantic notion of going to war and it being adventurous or it being kind of a clean 
deal. And that's what we see with this picture here that you put up again. Um, not 100% confirmed, but it is believed that this picture is of the dead of Parker's Virginia battery. They're sitting exactly on the ground Parker's battery would be at, and the National Park Service agrees with me, as if you go to Parker's battery site in Richmond, Virginia, there is actually a, an entire unit set up for Parker's battery. Uh, this picture is featured there, and it does state that it is some of the members of Parker's Virginia battery. Um, it's a very horrific picture to look at. Uh, this is the plateau in front of the Dunker Church. Uh, this is, if this is Parker's battery, it's going to feature that young man that I mentioned earlier. And I, I do want to try to get, um, and Darren, whether it's a post I do later and send to you, I, I would like to get the name of that young boy that was killed at Antietam that the, the father of that boy wrote so, so much to, to Parker to bring him home and that attempt failed that he's going to be in that collection of Confederate dead there in that picture. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, um, really powerful. I mean, when you've seen, I mean, I mean, I've seen colorized pictures of these, and that that brings sure. even worse, you know. But I mean, wow, what an experience to go and see that gallery as it was. Wow, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, so this eventually is going to end in only one thing, and that is the sacking of McClellan. This is a, a really famous Civil War picture. If you put in Civil War photos, this one always comes up. Lincoln and McClellan sitting there having a little gym wag. So tell us about the sacking of McClellan, please. Um, I sure. So I'd like to save a lot of this, honestly, for our Fredericksburg episode, but I'll talk okay. a little bit about, I think, why McClellan's getting sacked. And it, it's the, the non-aggressive standpoint that McClellan's taking. That was not to say that McClellan isn't entirely unaggressive, because on the 19th, McClellan does chase Lee briefly to Baudelaire's Ford and Shepherdstown. And there is a very brief but fierce fight at Shepherdstown. And that is an attempt for McClellan to try and pursue Lee because he realizes on the morning of the 19th that the Confederates aren't there anymore. They're gone. They packed their bags and hightailed it back to Virginia. And on their way back to Virginia, obviously, at the time, Shepherdstown is Virginia. This is the crossing point of the Army of Northern Virginia. So you have McClellan and um, just really, I think, trying to, whether it be feeling out what force is really left, or is it an aggressive McClellan? That I definitely leave that for you guys to debate for sure at home, whether or not this is a aggressive McClellan or if it's George just feeling out what's left. It, it, it's it's kind of, again, up in the air there. Um, but it, it is. It's going to lead eventually to McClellan getting sacked and Ambrose Everett Burnside, the gentleman that we had just talked about at that lower bridge there, taking command of the Army of the Potomac and leading it to a very controversial battle in December of 1862. So if you'll let me stop at the sacking of McClellan, yeah, I would yeah. love to go yeah, into not it more. Before Lincoln, not before Lincoln gives... My favorite trolling quote. Oh, please do share. We can do oh, that one here. Yeah, please do share. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so you're talking several weeks after the battle, Lincoln gets a telegram or letter from, from McClellan saying that the horses are tired and need rest and he's still refitting. And Lincoln responds, very witty guy. We're, talk we're talking, you know, you see all these melancholy things. And you can imagine the frustration he's feeling at this point because where's McClellan at this time? Several weeks after battle, he's still at Sharpsburg. And Lincoln responds, 
something to the effect, this is pretty close, this is off the top of my head. He'll say, General, you'll, you will pardon me for asking what the horses of the Army of the Potomac have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigued anything. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's a pretty deep dig uh, at, at McClellan. And it, it's actually after this photo. Um, and there's other photos from, from this time that I, I – truly like that I find very intriguing there's one showing McClellan and Lincoln and a bunch of Union officers and in that photo you have a lot of really famous officers uh, you have a young sideburned uh, George Armstrong Custer who's still an aide to McClellan and then you have a very interesting one also with uh, McCle it's Pinkerton Lincoln and a, a bearded guy, and a lot of people are like, who's this bearded guy with this weird, tall, army-looking top hat? And then you see the name, it's actually John B. McClernand. And you're like, what's he doing here? Because McClernand yeah. was a, a division commander under Grant. Mm -hmm. That's right. And he, was, he had come east for the sole purpose of... of lobbying Lincoln for command of the Vicksburg expedition, which is, you know, about to kick off that winter. Um, and, you know, he had, you know, he was one of the war Democrats that Lincoln believed he needed the support of, and he never quite got what he wanted, but it's always interesting to see photos of him there at Antietam. Um, it is. Taken after the battle because it's so out of place. Mm-hmm. Tim, do you want to add anything about the uh, the gardener photographs? Um, there's that one, actually, uh, with the Confederates along the fence. I think it was the first photo you had. The one before this. That yep. One? So that one on the left. So that's taken along the Hagerstown Turnpike. So when I'm talking about the ledge that the mm -hmm. Wisconsinites and the Indianans mm -hmm. are on, it's possible. Now, you can't really see to the left what's there. You need that to be able to, to definitively say. But it's possible that these are some of the Confederates hit in the back by the mm. Iron Brigade. Um, they're, you know, firing from the ledge. At least at, a, at the very least, this is in that general vicinity. Um, because that fence and, and is a far greater obstacle than, than people think because mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a deep six post or six rail fence. Um, troops trying to, to cross that and it runs the entire length of the turnpike and the Confederates, especially closer down towards the um, visitor center and, and a fighting that really gets completely ignored because Confederates will try to cross this fence. Um, and to be honest, the, this photo could have been of, of them. Um, these are McClaw, you know, we believe these are of Hayes's Louisianians, but, uh, later down by the visitor center, uh, coming from the West woods there, uh, McClaw's division attacks up that hill towards the New York monument and the visitor center, uh, past where Parker's battery is. And they actually get mowed down by Green's men, which are, they have that refused flank up by the New York monument. Um, and they so coming up to the Hagerstown Pike, they have to cross this six rail fence, can't really tear it down, no time, and then get across the road, then climb another six rail fence, 
it there's very strong resemblance to if you're you know looking Gettysburg later and and you're familiar with the Emmitsburg Road difference being is that it's obviously you take a look at this fence it's almost entirely intact they're you know not much damage whereas the Emmitsburg Road at that point had, had been fought over planks yes it was still intact in many places but there were probably more holes uh there than there were on the Hagerstown Pike at Antietam so cool thanks for adding that Okay, let's move on to some famous paintings of James Hope. And Tyler, you want to talk about these, though? I do, actually. So just as important, and this is a little post-war, but just as important as those pictures are these series of paintings done by a man named James Hope. James Hope was born in Scotland in 1819, losing his mother very young when he was barely the age of two. At nine years old, him and his father will move to Canada, of all places, where Hope's father will die just a few years later. This will leave a 16-year-old James Hope to fend for himself and decided that the United States would be a better place to fare when he moves to Vermont. And at the start of the Civil War, he's going to be one of the first few Vermonters to actually enlist in the war. He doesn't serve long. He will enlist in Company B, 2nd Vermont Infantry, and was appointed to the captain of that regiment. He will serve at the Battle of First Bull Run, and by the summer of 1862, he will be with General McClellan's army around the peninsula. And it was there that he was recognized for his talent in landscape art that got him an assignment as a topographical engineer. He would accurately depict images of shrubs, of vegetation, roads, waterways, you name it. And it was almost invaluable to McClellan and McClellan would use him for this purpose. Well, he catches, or uh, what we call it, yellow fever. There's a name for it too, a nickname in that part of Virginia. When uh, the yellow fever or uh, the Chickahominy fever, she would get. And he would still stay with the army, even though suffering from this, and then take a bout of dysentery in September of 1862, meaning that the 2nd Vermont, uh, which was part of the 6th Corps, actually sits in reserve. So he's not doing much there. And eventually in December of 1862, just before the Battle of Fredericksburg, he would leave the army. A post-war, Hope is going to paint some pictures, or some portraits, I should say, of um, uh, non-really Civil War-related things. Watkins Glen was the one where he actually receives a $10,000 commission to paint a scene of the pastoral community of Watkins Glen, the resort town that he ends up moving to to take this commission. Uh, he's even given a or gives a picture to uh, Robert E. Lee after the war and asks him to somehow find its way into the National Art Gallery. But the reason I bring up James Hope and want to talk about his paintings are for a very different reason. And you're seeing one of his paintings, which we call number two, that is depicting the Dunker Church Plateau. And it's a little interesting at how he's depicting it. So this isn't necessarily the most accurate, and we can tell that he took some artistic freedom with this. The reason for that is this is showing what happens after the assault in the Westwoods when Sedgwick is in there, when they have moved out of the Eastwoods. By that time, S.D. Lee's battery wasn't on that plateau anymore. So this is showing kind of a time lapse here. What he does do also is kind of show the graphic nature of the battle. In the right foreground, just under the first gunner that you will see there, 
Sadly, we see a confederate who has been torn in two by a shell. You only see the upper torso, and his legs are actually off uh, the painting there. He doesn't decide to paint the lower half of the rebel soldier there. But you do see the torn body of a confederate artillerist. He does a numerous amount of paintings, so if you ever want to see some of them, I highly encourage a visit to Antietam, or just even online, looking at the series of paintings James, James Hope does for the Battle of Antietam. And uh, knowing, too, in the back of your mind that there are some serious artistic freedoms done with this, it I think at the same time, it gives you a good idea of the scale of the fighting and kind of the intensity of what was happening at Antietam. It's not the, the pictures that Gardner is going to send home to everybody's doorstep. It's not the the famous, you know, bloody, uh, bloody uh, lane pictures that you're seeing. Like this one here, this is the bloody lane portion that James Hope's painting. But I think it's also useful to talk about because this isn't a, uh, a cyclorama like Atlanta and Gettysburg, but you're getting panoramic scenes of this battle painted. And if you have been fortunate enough to see the visitor center before it's gone, it's restoration. In the basement of the visitor center, these were hanging up on the wall. You could actually go in and see and the interpretation too was fantastic kind of describing what you're seeing in these paintings but uh they're an absolute powerful <laughs> tool to use to visualize antietam and um after hope dies <coughs> excuse me in um, october of 1892 the gallery he has this painting at or these paintings at originally flood and destroyed much of the other work, but only, not only, but it severely damaged the Antietam paintings. Uh, in 1955, an art collector purchased what was surviving of the Hope pieces, and the Antietam paintings were actually stored in an old church in Watkins Glen. The National Park Service in 1979 realized their importance and purchased them for $5,000. And it began the process of trying to bring them back to life from the flood damage. And the cost of that was $10,000 each painting. So obviously the National Park Service realized the importance of this. And not only does James Hope paint this, he paints other battle scenes, including Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, First Manassas. All of those works were destroyed in 1935. We don't know James Hope's Fredericksburg paintings, sadly. But the Bloody Lane one is an enlargement of a small version of the original scene that's now owned today by the United States Army Military History, or U Center for Military History. And because of his paintings, it is argued that some of these visitors will better understand that day of Antietam and September 17th. Okay. Um, let me just flick to the other picture. So you've got the birds. Yeah, it's a bird bridge. bridge. Well. Pretty cool. And There's five paintings in total of this mm -hmm. whole scene. That yeah, So in this one, you can actually see he does another great job. He's showing you the Muma farm burning there too. And you can see yeah. Piper's cornfield there in the distance as well. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, all I'm going to say is thank you for coming on and talking about um, Antietam. Um, it was great to actually go and visit it as well in person. So that was really cool. I'm uh, glad we got to do that. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, so um, what I will say to people is if you're listening to this as a podcast and you would like to see the pictures that we were talking about, then head over to the YouTube channel. But all that's left to say is thank you guys and I'll see you all soon.
Well, thank you for having us. Cheers.